You saw it in a vision, a mountain with a man reaching toward the sun. You keep seeing it and had to go there yourself to the center. The people in the villages were so nice. The kindness of strangers kept revealing itself in your journey, but it was a long one. You described where you wanted to go. East was the constant refrain. Crossing the great river was the hard part, but even then, someone was looking out for you. You kept heading east toward the rising sun and eventually toward the haze in the sky. The villages became more numerous and the cornfields even more abundant and beautiful. The haze kept getting darker. You've never seen so many houses, so many fires. Then you see it in the distance, the mountain you've been looking for. You see trading, feasting. You've made it to the outer boundary. You've never seen so many people. Then you approach the wooden circle where people are dancing. You see the mountains surrounded by plazas and hills, but a great house is on top. You've seen this before in your mind. Then as you look towards the top of the mountain, its top is flat. What is this? You see the man from your dreams surrounded by his attendants. You're finally at the center, but then you realize this wasn't a mountain you saw in your dream. The people made this. These people made all of this. Did they do that on his command? As he reaches toward the great light and you hear him speak, you fall to your knees from exhaustion and realize that this is the place you've been searching for. So, where do you think you are? If you're guessing Egypt, you're in the wrong hemisphere. If you're thinking Mexico, you're still off by a few hundred miles. You're in the Mississippian city of Cahokia, just outside of modern-day St. Louis, and it's the largest city you've never heard of. Dovayai no provayai. Trust but verify. For these are the only incontrovertible facts that I know. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. We have liftoff of the Titan Centaur carrying the first of two Voyager spacecraft to extend man's senses farther into the solar system than ever before. Another plane has just hit it hit another building. Awesome. He got it. Historical diversions. In its day, the Mississippian city of Cahokia was the largest Native American city outside of Mexico. Its ascension around 1050 AD was called the Big Bang, and it created a political, cultural, religious, and military juggernaut. Its influence can be found hundreds of miles away, across much of eastern North America. However, by the 1350s, it was a ghost town, sitting abandoned. If you're guessing its end was due to Spanish conquistadors and European diseases, it would be true for other Mississippian settlements, but it wouldn't be for Cahokia. The civilization that Cahokia gave rise to would last for a couple hundred more years after Cahokia's fall, before being decimated in an all-too-familiar fashion in the Americas. So let me back up. This episode is about the Mississippian city of Cahokia. 
did these people call themselves Mississippians from the land of Mississippi? Well, no. Was the city called Cahokia by its residents? Also no. Well, what about my episode's introduction about the weary traveler who became awed by his first experience at the great city? Well, I can't prove that story ever actually happened. I made it up. It took me a while to do it, too. I'm not great at writing fiction. But before I lose any more credibility in my first Historical Diversions episode, it could have happened. I just can't prove that it did. The Mississippians, as we call them, didn't leave written records that we've come across. And actually, many cultures didn't. We know so much about the ancient Mesopotamians, Egyptians, Jews, Greeks, Romans, etc., etc., because they left written records that we've been able to translate and read. We can understand their perspectives, their outlook, how they did things, who they liked, who they hated. Even if we don't have records from some cultures, we can still glean information about them from interactions of people who did write things down. But we don't have that for the Mississippians that built Cahokia. The Mississippians were not the first Native American civilization. And in fact, there's been a Native American presence in the Americas for a long time, like tens of thousands of years. To grossly oversimplify, multiple migrations of Homo sapiens to the Americas from Asia has been proven via DNA evidence. But the devil's in the details on the timing, and there's still some irregularities to sort out as to the actual beginning and how they spread over North and South America. The current understanding is that humans followed the megafauna, like woolly mammoths, woolly rhinoceroses, giant deer, etc., across a land bridge between Asia and North America, called Beringia. And this route was closed around 11,000 years ago, when the glacial melting formed the Bering Sea. But by that time, humans had settled all over the Americas, either overland or by boat. Dates can be contentious, but settlements and animal kill sites with dates of 9,000, 13,000, and even 15,000 years ago are increasingly supported by the archaeological data. Even dates of 30,000 years ago or more can no longer be dismissed as fanciful. The Clovis culture, which is known by its distinctive projectile points, relied on hunting these megafauna, along with plant gathering as well, and they existed around 13,000 years ago. Their way of life spread all across the Americas. But when the megafauna died off, Clovis culture went with it. Folsom culture replaced Clovis, substituting the megafauna with ancient bison. But the story was the same as Clovis, when at about 10,000 years ago, they also fell to the wayside. But humans didn't go away. Their way of life just changed. This change led to what we call the archaic way of life throughout the modern U.S. Gathering increased, new tools like the spear thrower or atlatl were developed, and that made hunting a lot easier. Small bands roamed seasonally, and eventually different regions developed differing cultural variations. Eventually, certain groups migrated less and formed connections to the land. Around 1800 B.C., in modern-day Louisiana, a settlement called Poverty Point became the first major settlement in the modern U.S. They built platform mounds for their residences and other important structures. They had a large trade network, and it was occupied for over a thousand years. Even though their population never exceeded 5,000, they also didn't farm at all, and no burials have been discovered anywhere on the site. Right now, 
It's an anomaly. The Adena culture was based around the Ohio River Valley and were active from roughly 1000 to 200 BC. Their conical burial mounds are distinct. Their trade network was expansive. Farming had just started, and while they were small, their settlements numbered in the hundreds. The Hopewell culture picked up where the Adena left off, from around 1000 BC to 400 AD, and it's been described as Adena 2.0. Like the Adena, the Hopewell also had an expansive trade network, but it went even further. They farmed a lot more, but also created far more earthworks in addition to burial mounds. Their complexes were more elaborate, with astronomical alignments and knowledge of surveying that hadn't been seen before. But by 500 AD, the Hopewell trade networks had collapsed, and evidence of increasing violence appears in their burials. In the wake of the Hopewell collapse, the effigy mound culture tradition appeared across Wisconsin and parts of Iowa, along the Mississippi River. They're known for their burial mounds that had the shapes of bears, birds, turtles, among other forms. There used to be tens of thousands of these mounds across the landscape. About 400 of these remain today. These people had also started growing corn around 900 AD, but corn had started to appear about 100 years earlier, and by 1000 AD, their lifestyle was replaced by something else, and their way of life ended. In modern-day Arkansas, a site called Plum Bayou, as formerly known as Toltec Mounds, was a prototype of what was to come. It was a mound-centered town, with Hopewell-style earthworks surrounding a center settlement like a barricade, where large earthen mounds dominated the center. Around 1000 AD, the site was abandoned. But where did everyone go? All of those named cultures preceded the Mississippian way of life in eastern North America, and they're all collectively known as woodlands cultures. Now, those names you might have noticed don't sound like indigenous names at all. They aren't. Most of them were based around the names of modern properties that they were on. Even the name Mississippian is the name archaeologists gave the culture based on their prevalence around the Mississippi River, and we'll likely never know what a lot of these people at that time called themselves. Imagine trying to learn about the United States without even knowing that we called ourselves Americans. A tall order, to say the least. Archaeology is how we know much of the information regarding these and many other cultures. Now, I just glossed over thousands of years of human history. Each one of those cultures deserves a podcast of their own. I barely did them justice. So, why did I bring any of them up? Is this what I mean by historical diversions? Well, <laughs> maybe. The Mississippian way of life did not appear in a vacuum. It was built on the shoulders of those who came before. In addition, the introduction of the bow and arrow around 500 AD from the north and the spread of corn agriculture from the southwest, estimated to be about 700 AD or later, were revolutionary changes to the way of life that had existed for thousands of years in the Americas. And now, the stage is set for an explosion. In an area of modern-day Illinois where the Mississippi and Missouri rivers converge, there's an area of fertile floodplain known today as the American Bottom. In this area, a large village developed on the eastern side of the Mississippi River around 700 AD. It was just east of the modern city of St. Louis. There were other villages like it, but Old Cahokia, as it's referred to, steadily grew. 
In this area, animals like white-tailed deer, turkey, rabbits, and fish were valued sources of protein. Plants like sunflower, goosefoot, tobacco, and squash were important, but the intensive cultivation of corn was the difference maker for the Mississippians. Agriculture was not just becoming the primary way of subsistence. There was enough food produced that surpluses became common. And in history, when food surpluses happen, populations tend to increase. With these increased populations, classes started to develop within their society and inequities developed. It's become clear that the Mississippians had their version of haves and have-nots, and that wasn't as common with other Native American societies. Their hierarchy has been described as a complex chiefdom, but based on what the Mississippians were to accomplish, I think they meet the criteria for at least a rudimentary state-level government. It certainly required the consent of many, many people. Cahokia apparently offered a new way of life and encouraged migration. Their trade network was extensive, and if you were an envoy from a faraway settlement or a farmer from a neighboring village, what you would have seen was far different than anything you've ever come across. Starting around 1050 AD, the population grew from a little over a thousand people to around 10 to 15,000 people within a couple of decades. The city proper was a roughly five square mile area. Taking into account the surrounding villages, hamlets, farmsteads, etc., the population is estimated to be 50,000 people. That's comparable to the population of London at the same time, and it wouldn't be approached in the U.S. for the next few centuries. 1050 AD is known as Cahokia's Big Bang, an apt description if there ever was one. Cahokia also underwent something unlike anything else north of Mexico, urban renewal. A large area of homes and other buildings around the central precinct was razed to the ground and then rebuilt. The Cahokians could have built the site at any number of different locations, but they purposely chose that area. And it wasn't wanton destruction but an orderly redesign with obvious central planning. This city was based around a central plaza, large mounds, and a central axis, and we call that today the Rattlesnake Causeway, that for some reason is five degrees off of True North. We don't really know why, because the Mississippians knew how to survey the land and could determine True North, and some buildings are actually aligned to True North. Now, Cahokia is a city that contained 120 mounds in total, what is a mound, anyway? Mounds weren't simply piles of dirt. They were structures with a purpose. Excavations show that prior to mound construction, the land was leveled at the base to provide a flat surface. There were three types of mounds at Cahokia. Conical mounds had existed since Adena times. These were burial mounds that looked just like they sound. They were built by having successive burials that were wider at the base and narrower toward the top. Depending on how many burials are inside, they could get very large. A platform mound is also like how it sounds. It's a raised foundational surface, which was used to put buildings at a higher elevation. Important buildings like council lodges, elite homes, or even charnel houses were on top of them. So a charnel house is the ancient equivalent of a funeral home where bodies were prepared for burial. Many conical mounds actually started off building off of the remains of a burnt down charnel house. The last type is a ridgetop mound, and it's unique to Cahokia, with a possible exception elsewhere. This type of mound is a series of burial mounds that are capped off within a larger mound with material to form a rectangular prism. Europeans actually called them earthen barns when they first saw them. 
As I said earlier, Cahokia contains 120 mountains, so I'm going to go through all of them individually in alphabetical order. Just kidding, I'm not doing that. But I think I can start with the largest at the site. Well, it isn't just the largest at the site, it's the largest earthen construction or platform mound in all of the Americas. It's been described as a pyramid, the third largest in the New World. I prefer calling them earthen structures myself, but that doesn't really roll off the tongue either. Whatever type you ascribe to it, it's known as Monk's Mound, since French missionaries lived in that area centuries later. It's a massive structure, and it would not be an exaggeration to call it a man-made mountain. At its base, it's larger than the Great Pyramid of Giza at over 14 acres, and it's over 100 feet high. It's estimated to be made of over 26 million cubic feet of material. For comparison, the estimate of the total amount of soil is around 50 million cubic feet for all of the mounds at Cahokia. This material was composed of differing layers of clays, sands, soils, silt, and sod, dug and carried by hand. There's also evidence of colored soils and black clays, and these would give the mounds a stark contrast to the ground level, and it would also serve as a contrast to the green vegetation that covers the mounds today. Monk's Mound was clearly a massive labor project to construct, but how long did it take to build? Originally, it was thought that construction started around 900 AD and lasted around a century or so of continuous expansion and construction. New estimates using computer modeling show that the construction could have instead taken 20 to 30 years, a massive short-term effort instead of a sustained long-term one. One of the updated dates for construction is around 1050 AD, and around Cahokia, that date keeps popping up. So we may not know how long it took, but do we know why the Cahokians built it? Why would the Cahokians build such a massive structure? The most likely hypothesis was that building these types of large mound structures were a religious or community project. Think of the Amish barn raising tradition on steroids. We don't know how exactly personnel was managed and organized to create the structure. No blueprints or anything like it has come down to us, but we can see the results. And while we're also not sure how the labor was organized, we do know that the Cahokians pushed the limits of soil engineering with Monk's Mound. Today, it has four terraces, but when it was originally built, at least one of them was part of the summit. Slumping of material has plagued Monk's Mound throughout its history. Uh, water gets stored in the soil and then becomes too heavy for the weight of the structure to support. There's also evidence of stone within the structure of Monk's Mound, but its exact dimensions within the structure are unclear. The summit of the mound, or the fourth terrace level, is four acres in size and contains the largest structure in Cahokia. It was about a 5,000 square foot building and also had a large courtyard. And unfortunately, we don't know much about the building itself because all that remains are post holes and wall fragments. No other artifacts were found. In its day, however, it would have been a powerful symbol of the authority of the Cahokian leadership. It was probably a combination of ritual center, council lodge, and home to the paramount chief. Since it was the largest structure by far in every direction, everyone would know who was in charge. If you were a person coming down from Monk's Mound in its day, you'd likely be a person of great importance. You'd be walking down the staircase and would be facing south. The staircase opened up to what we call today the Grand Plaza, 
it was a flattened 50 acre area. And flattened doesn't quite convey the scale of the project. It was an area that was purposely cut and leveled with three feet of soil to even out the natural swale topography and then a sandy soil topped off the last few inches. There were other plazas that surrounded Monk's Mound, uh, one to the west, one to the north, and eventually two to the east, but this was the biggest by far. And this grand plaza was arguably more important to the common person than Monk's Mound probably was, as this was the center of town where all the action was. This was where conspicuous feasting, trading, and ceremonies occurred. There was also a chunky court in the center. So what is a chunky court? Uh, this wasn't an area that residents shame people like me who could stand to lose a little weight. Chunky was a game that was played by the Mississippians. The game was played on a prepared flattened surface with one person rolling the chunky disc like a bowling ball down the field. Two people would then try to throw spears at the stone with the goal having your spear closest to the disc. There's some YouTube videos by the Cherokee Nation showing how the game is played now, but we'll probably never understand the nuances of the game the way that the Cahokians played it. I liken it to figuring out the nuances of basketball or baseball based on only the ball and the playing surface alone. We do see chunky stones as community property and burials, and Cahokia had a specific style of chunky stone that had concave surfaces on both sides and they've been found as trade items at other Mississippian sites. Europeans who saw these games at European Contact described them as massive events, and gambling on the outcome was a notable feature. To the Mississippians, these games were a combination of religious event, competitive sport, and it might have even been used as a substitute for open conflict. The houses at Cahokia were fairly basic single-family structures, they were rectangular in shape with a lower foundation about three feet below the ground. These houses also had sapling walls covered over with mud and clay with golden thatches roofing. They also had central wood fire hearths for heat and storage pits for food. Some even had sweat baths for ritual purification. They could house about three to five people and they're so similar in their construction that it's been speculated that they could have been prefabricated before final assembly. Hundreds of these houses were spread across Cahokia, but were consolidated in neighborhoods surrounding their own plazas, courtyards, and mounds. There were many surrounding the Grand Plaza, but there were hundreds more outside of it. Another mound by Monk's Mound, Mound 34, shows evidence of specialized copper craft production. Metallurgy didn't exist in the New World to create weaponry like it did in the Old World. Mississippian weaponry was limited to war clubs or maces, spears, bow and arrow, stone knives, and axes. The copper production was used in ceremonial objects and copper plating or plaques that depicted religious and symbolic iconography. The objects had been found in the burials of elites and were not everyday objects used by the typical Cahokian. The stone hoe, which was used to create long straight lines for corn agriculture, is the most common object that Cahokians produced. Other objects like arrowheads, uh, Cahokia-style pottery, clay sculptures, and engraved shell jewelry were also very common and distinctive. We don't know if Cahokia had specialized craftsmen for all of these goods, but farming was the main occupation to the vast majority of Cahokian families. Cahokia's trade network was vast, as raw materials came from varied locations across the eastern U.S. Marine shells from the Gulf of Mexico, copper from Lake Superior, 
and mica from the Appalachians are just a few examples of the materials that the Cahokians could procure. Finished products from Cahokia have been found all over the eastern U.S., as far west as Oklahoma, as far north as Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Canada, and as far south as Louisiana, Florida, and Georgia. Today, we can only get hints of the Mississippian belief system and mythology, but we can glean from their art and the study of descendant cultures, or ethnography, what was important to their outlook and worldview. We call it the Southeastern Ceremonial Complex, the SECC, or the Southern Cult. It was so named because most of the earliest artifacts found were from sites in the southeastern United States. We know that in their belief system they had an upper world in the heavens, inhabited by thunderbirds, a middle world inhabited by humans, animals, what we're familiar with, and an underworld inhabited by creatures called piasaws, or underwater panthers, but they can also look like dragons or snakes. There are depictions of a hero named Redhorn, also known as the long-nosed god with a long red braid or, and a longer nose. His other name is he who wears human heads as earrings, and sculptures show a figure with little heads on his ears. The Mississippians had a variety of iconic symbols, such as a cross in a circle, uh, a trilobed arrow, and crazily enough, a swastika. They had it hundreds of years before the Nazis did, and it's actually a symbol that's found in the ancient world with different meanings depending on the culture. My favorite motif shows an eye in the palm of an open hand, and the eye itself reminds me of that one Twilight Zone episode where the guy had the third eye. It looks like that to me. I don't know why, it just does. There's another symbol called the Axis Mundi. It's a pole or a tree, and the when it looks like a pole, it kind of looks like a barbershop pole with the stripes, and it depicts the portal to the upper and underworlds. There are also human depictions of chunky players and men with bird clothing and imagery. But there's also a darker side to the SECC mythology. There are many depictions of warriors in different situations. In particular, many show men with decapitated heads on their belts. Violence, human sacrifice, and institutionalized killing were an integral part of Cahokia's rise to power. But we'll cover that, Cahokia's fall, and more in part two of Cahokia and the Mississippians. Hi everyone, thank you for listening to Historical Diversions. If you enjoyed this episode, your feedback would be greatly appreciated. Five-star reviews, positive comments, and even just telling your friends about us helps. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., but the mothership is historicaldiversions.com. You can find show notes, ways to support, and other fun info on there. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was written and produced by your host through Historical Diversions, LLC. Any other rights belong to their respective owners.